0: Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert. Um, before we get into this week, I'd like to thank um, those few of you that got in touch with me asking if I had indeed got the coronavirus, thanks to my voice last week. On um, police report, I haven't. I don't think I have anyway. What I have is something much worse for me, and that is cat. Um, I found myself um, blocked, or homebound with, um, well, I didn't expect to be, with a large cat, So, thank you for your concerns, but as we stand, I think I'm okay. Moving to matters more serious. Um, It's been a hell of a week, I think is one way to put it. Um, We've had so many market events that have raised so many questions that um, you kind of sometimes wonder where to begin. Um, And I'm delighted that uh, joining me this week is John Crouch, founder and CEO of Ideal Prediction, um, which... You know, a company that looks at, you know, into monitoring compliance and ethics and behaviors around the trading markets. John, uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to be back on. Yes,
0: indeed. And uh, obviously, you are a former trader, as am I. So this may meander into a bit of market talk. So um, hopefully, our listeners will forgive us that one. Um, where to start, John? Well, I think what I'll do, I'll start probably the easy way, uh, which is Monday morning in Sydney when. Mm-hmm. I was um, receiving lots of messages. I'm, I'm currently in the UK. I was receiving lots of messages Sunday night saying what's happened to Dollar Canada. Like I would know, of course. Um, <laughs> as, a, as I understand it, um, I think Bloomberg were calling the low one thirty nine seventy nine. Um, somebody actually did at some stage put an offering at one forty. The figure. Um, not sure whether it traded. Um, most people had no idea it was traded below one forty one uh one forty fifteen. Now. This led inevitably to a lot of questions around, um, as these things inevitably do when something strange happens. Yeah, someone was trying to run some stocks. Someone was trying to trigger a barrier option. The fact is we don't know these things, but they are ethical questions. Um, and I guess it's even more prevalent now because what, you know, we've had over the years in Sydney, which has been very thin market conditions for the first two, three hours of the day. Before Asia kind of really gets going, um, can happen any time now. So, I mean, from your perspective, John, this to me looks like a very a simple matter of making sure we have a more robust policy and making sure we know how to monitor highs and lows and behaviours around those highs and lows. Is that fair, or am I oversimplifying it?
1: Look, I think that would be great if it's, if it's fully achievable. Um, you've got a distributed FX system that trades on a bunch of different venues. So it's not like, um, you know, futures where you have a few venues and you can, you have a central limit order book and you can just enforce strict rules. You have um, mechanisms of trading that are very different and globally distributed. But also, you know, the, the fundamental problem I see and that is, you know, really going to persist for some time is uh, the matter of liquidity. So it is possible that there was some, you know, nefarious acts, you know, let's say during those sitting hours, but it could have also just been, you know, someone genuinely trying to trade. Um It could have been, you know, um, a trader who had uh, received an uncomfortable amount of risk was trying to, you know, work out of it. It's hard to know without really understanding truths what the the you know real causes were behind that. Yeah. You know, so I, I think yeah. you you just gotta keep that in consideration. It's not like um you know, it's not like everyone's a bad behavior in the market.
0: Although unfortunately we kind of hit the the sort of area where people's first thought now is, okay, who's what what are they up to? What are they trying to do? And I guess that's the cost of what happened five years ago when when everything kind of fell apart in the, in the sort of cultural and behavioral um, sphere. I mean, to my mind, I look at this and think, so, that, so therefore, is this actually then a job for um, the internal compliance and monitoring team to sort of look at it and go, okay, well, I've got a question. They need to look broader maybe because at the moment I'm looking at it saying, well, should somebody be going down to that person who placed the 140 offer and say, can I ask why you did that when the rest of the market doesn't think it was there. You
1: know, that's right. And when you get down to a lot of these ethical issues, it's not strictly black and white. You know, people can make genuine mistakes. Um, and understanding intent is something that we're not able to do just by looking at a bunch of ECN data. You know, certainly the yeah. publicly available stuff. So, you know, I, I think it really is up to the the individual firm's to monitor the behavior of the traders and then go in and understand intent. You know, another thing too is, you know, people are trading remotely. Um, there, there may not be the same controls on fat fingers and other things that, you know, kind of maybe they would have yeah. a lot of good, robust controls and a lot of access to the market if they were sitting on the trading floor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, I think there's been quite a few moves this week around the, my sources are telling me have been triggered by sort the, of the fairly aggressive algos, but they're kind of calling them fat finger algo trades, whereas I'm not actually okay. convinced they are. I think what it is is actually someone hitting the hitting the bun and I'm sure we can talk about that a bit more later on. I and mean, when it comes to sort of establishing these things, would it? Do you kind of get the impression it would help if we have something like this sort of event happen, and not necessarily on a Monday morning in Sydney, although that is a regular time for it to happen, but at any time. Um, someone can flag to, I don't know, a a trusted neutral provider that there's been some strange price action and then invite information on it. Because it strikes me that, for instance, in this case, if there was an option barrier and someone can anonymously report to this neutral trusted advisor, i.e. a regulator, well, I had a barrier option at 140, which is which someone's tried to knock out. That kind of gives us a lead into where we're going, doesn't it? The same with stops. If, you know, someone said, I had a stop loss at 140 and it's been triggered. That kind of gives us a lead into the motive behind the trading. If we don't get any of those complaints, we can just put it down to, as you say, somebody making either a mistake or, you know, in hindsight, a poor decision.
1: Yeah. So in order to fully understand truth and intent, the amount of data that you need is so vast. And I, I don't think any firm would reasonably, you know, centralize that data. You know, even, yeah. uh, even if you get into credit, um, you know, corporate bond trading and, uh, the issues that the big firms complain about, you know, the use of trace kind of against them. Um, yeah. you know, there's kind of these unintended consequences of, of that centralized reporting. And, yeah. you know, the amount, you know, the number of data sets you would need, the, um, the data sets would not only need to be vast and diverse, they would also need to be complete and clean, and then you would have to have people on the regulatory side who would be able to understand all those data sets you know that's that's quite an ask
0: yeah, yeah i mean I, <laughs> I suppose it's one of those things i mean ultimately this still comes down to what we used to have to do you know twenty thirty years ago, and that is trust trust- you know trust the institution's process and trust the individuals to do the right thing with you know. What we have now is much better ability to monitor that, um, that conduct. But at the bottom line, it comes down to: this, do we we have to trust somebody to make sure they're doing, they're actually checking things the right way, isn't it? It's um, it's an interesting one.
1: There it certainly is trust to, involved, yeah. and you know, and, and yeah. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about this because you talk to a lot more people. But here's my experience of the traders that exist in the market, and this is not just in FX. This is in Credit um you know my friends who trade uh u s high yield and um you know uh u s treasuries like the people that are in these seats right now that I discuss like and t- discuss ideas with I view them as very ethical people you know the the you know poor behavior that we may have witnessed from time to time, I think that's been pretty filtered out and and everyone knows that. Hey you know all of these all these uh things may not be discoverable in the next five minutes, but in retrospect with uh you know investigators looking at a lot of data sets internally, you know you can't hide
0: behind anything yeah yeah um i i would i I will agree with you up to a point um the only observation I would make is I think there are quite a few people around the world who for some reason didn't understand that what they were typing to chat rooms might actually come back to haunt them right and these are ostensibly very intelligent people I think why would you write that in a chat room um but they did and um, that was in black and white so <clears throat> I totally get your point and I think in terms of fx certainly which is you know more my my sphere um I think the dealers that are in the seats are highly ethical and I think they had a massive shock to the system three to five years ago when so many people in their industry and in many cases, so many of their seniors were literally just cut out. So yeah, the yeah, juniorization. I, I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'd, I'd say I'd, so I would tend to agree with you on that.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I feel like the juniorization of markets, you know, especially being an older guy, now, <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. you know, I, I lament it because I remember being a junior person in the nineties. Um, I was trading uh, U.S. treasuries, in 98, when Russia defaulted and long-term capital started to blow up and, you know, uh, we walked in one day and, and the treasury green screens, which usually had very tight markets of a quarter tick and various swaps and stuff like that. They had no markets at all. And if you price something 10 ticks wide, you would get dealt and, and yeah. you would end up losing money even at that. And, and yeah. being a junior person, then I needed that senior guidance of like, okay, here's how we're going to approach this. This is how you make the markets in this particular condition that you've never seen before, but I have. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I, I believe that that loss of that guidance in, in the market.
0: Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I certainly think that this, what we're seen, the illiquidity we're seeing at the moment, is not exclusively driven by the fact that there's more machines trading out there. I think it's, as you say, it's the fact that um, there are plenty of people sitting in trading desks with reasonable experience now. I've mm-hmm. never seen anything like this. Um, I mean, someone pointed out last year, I think it was, the when the Fed hiked, I think it was last year, um, somebody pointed out on some social media feed, no doubt, that it was the first time that a trader of 10 years' experience had actually seen the Fed hike. Right. Right. Imagine it's, <laughs> it's, you, you put things into that perspective, you suddenly go like, yeah, okay, this is actually a new experience for not necessarily just the juniors anymore. It's some people sitting in senior positions um so your question of ethics then actually around you know and, and people being ethical brings me to my second point because the um I, I i shudder to use the phrase standout event because there's nothing standout about it but there was carnage around the tokyo fix at 9:55 tokyo time on tuesday which was the japanese fiscal year end so the year end fix um it was obviously the wm quarter end fix and i think just about everybody knew there was going to be dollar demand thanks to the mechanics of how these how these funds work um so to regard a second conversation i've had where someone was saying to me that um they were speaking to someone who pointed out and pointedly referred to the fact that the tokyo fix is a reference rate not a benchmark rate it's a time stamp so therefore um, if people want to trade in that timestamp, then it's up to them because there's no benchmark window for them to trade to. Now, the inference I got was that this person had bought quite a few dollars in the minute leading up to the, from 9.54 AM mm-hmm. um, Tokyo time. Now, obviously they did very well because what happened then was, um, you know, we had the fix. Everyone tried to chase the timestamp and, and buy dollars into the fix. We had, you know, 80 point move um in dollar yen up and down we had yeah, euro dollar doing 60 points Aussie he did 150 cable did 150 i think it was yeah, there was no way this was a, a genuine reflection on what happened in the market and there's a good chance it was wasn't a, a good reflection of where the market was because one trader took advantage of information that was public or, or should we say broadly known so here's a i mean a few observations a few questions where do we stand in terms of the ethics, ethics around such trading? Because to me, I look at it and go, well, frankly, it's a bit, it's a bit like Darwinism. Um, this is somebody who's taken advantage of information available to everybody to the advantage of people who have the information but choose not to use it. Am I being too simple?
1: So I think there's, there's several different factors here that goes back to, you know, our, Ongoing discussion of liquidity. I think that's the central yeah. theme of, of this discussion. You know, there is a lack of liquidity so that, you know, um, a small amount of volume or a medium sized amount of volume is going to have an outsized move in the market. Additionally, you have a uh, little risk taking by, you know, by the banks. So, you know, yeah. they can't stand in front of these uh, moves and kind of provide the liquidity. Then you're asking, like, okay, is it okay for someone to do prop trading? And that becomes a really, really interesting question. So I think there's, there's several different aspects of this, but one is, you know, is it legal to do prop trading right now in FX bots? My understanding, there's no regulator that says restricting you can prop trade. You can hold risk. I'm happy to be corrected about that. But then there's also perception. And perception in light of the data at hand. So let's say, just for example, you had this intuition, you, you see public markets, you had no private information whatsoever, and you get on a, a retail site and you start buying dollar, uh, dollar yen right before that fixing time. Yeah. You had no information whatsoever. That was special. Yeah. Now, did you do, were you doing prop trading? Yes. Were you doing anything unethical? No, not really, because you you can really make sure that you have no information. But if you're in a bank, that perception issue may be more challenging because how can you prove with absolute certainty that you have no information? That's kind of the perception issue that, that we have in, in and we can know a lot of this ethical stuff. Proving the negative as opposed to the positive is, is very challenging. And do you want to take that kind of risk as an individual? You know, I think that becomes kind of your guidance on that.
0: But then, then does that not just shift the, I guess the emphasis of this away from the banks where I don't think any bank trader would want to take that risk, quite frankly, mm-hmm. to your point of yeah. view, you know, if anything, they're overly ethical, um, which sounds wrong, but what I mean is, you know, if there's any chance of anything being a grey area, they're choosing not to take a risk by stepping into that grey area where they actually could be providing a service to other clients or maybe to to their their bank shareholders. So does it shift it from there to prop firms, hedge funds who can sit there and go, well they're going to buy dollars at the fix, let's go and buy dollars at nine fifty three and watch the mayhem begin and just sell in and just sell into it just after the timestamp. It, it, it the the problem doesn't go away, does it? It just just shifts to a different group who are not subject to the same oversight.
1: Okay, that that is fair, and that is the um that was the overall shift of the regulators is to go in and say to the banks like this is how you're gonna behave and we need you to act this way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Um sure. and so it goes to the buy side. But the buy side, especially fast money buy side, they don't have they're not sitting there looking at the orders. They don't possibly have access to those orders unless someone is, you know, maliciously leaking them, which would be, I think, quite a stretch. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so I think that's the difference of perception at a bank is that, you know, um, you know, your friend who runs the uh, algo execution desk, he might turn over to you and say, hey, you know, someone's getting ready to buy a bunch of dollars. Yeah. And and that verbal communication is not caught in any data set.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that becomes a challenge, doesn't it? Although, then again, I suppose you know <laughs> the very the very danger of being overheard probably means that people would be careful about it, even making a comment like that on a on a public on on a big desk, wouldn't they? <laughs> you
1: know, I, and and you know, uh, I think like right now, someone could at least chat over their cell phone, <laughs> you know, and not be yeah. so well monitored. But you know, probably sure. not a good idea. Probably not you know good for your career long term, and and also you know you're know, you frankly not going to get paid for it the way you would have no. you know fifteen years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, I must confess I I think what I'm about to say kind of makes me sound like um I'm I would say to a mugging victim why did you walk down that street? But I I do kind of look at this problem and say um. Why are you know, I think the problem lies with those people relying so heavily on the timestamp, and and especially those that are trying to trade it because it's beyond ridiculous. As we found out, the 215 um, ECB fix uh, in Europe, there was no way that hundreds of millions, you know, let alone billions of dollars, can be traded in one second. So why are people trying to do this? You know, I mean, maybe we need to find out who they are and sort of wonder why they've been let loose on society. I'm not sure. Equally, I would argue, you know, why is the bank? The Bank of Japan knows this problem exists. So why can it not do what the ECB did and publish? Oh, sorry, change how it publishes and manages that fix. I think the ECB did it by, you know, saying announcing the 2:15 fixing rate at 4:30. Cracking. people can't. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, at least that way you introduce a sort of a a an element of doubt that means people cannot. They can use it for what it's meant to be, a reference rate. And if it costs them a couple of dollars here or there, well. You know, you, on the theory of random walk, it shouldn't happen too regularly, should it? Um, I'm not sure that takes away the problem that everybody knows people are to buy dollars or sell dollars at the fix. But um it is it is what it is, I guess.
1: Yeah. Going back to your question, which was, yeah. you know, why do people do it? If you know, there are, you know, large buy side firms that are trading other things, and that's part, just part of their process. And overall, yeah. it's been fine before. You know, and they trade at the fix and then they get their fills, you know, through a system and everything just kind of automatically settles and they don't have to worry about it. Um, and so I think that's that's why they did it. I don't think that they were um, you know, necessarily thinking about the liquidity issues that they were facing in FX. And maybe they're saying much worse liquidity issues and other instruments and they're not even thinking that, gosh, you know, I could have gotten a better fill on that dollar yen. They're
0: like, Hey, we've got bigger problems right now. <laughs> they, yeah, you know, I suppose they do actually. And this is, but then this is uh, to me. I found I, I've, I've, I've long been complaining about the fixes. Regular listeners and long-suffering readers will know my columns. But I, I kind of look at it and think to myself, well, if when markets were quieter, you know, before this this pandemic hit and created the as you did, know, yeah, we were seeing slippage. A WM, you know, in the three to four point range, which if you're talking billions of dollars, is quite a lot of money disappearing right. from investor pockets. Whereas I would argue that we probably wouldn't have that slippage if we executed over a longer window. So I get it's part of the process, and you're absolutely mm-hmm. correct. You know, funds want to set their NAV to this stuff. They want to they want to execute to the benchmark so they don't hang. You know, they don't penalise existing existing investors. I totally accept that. What I'm saying is. Maybe we need to change the process. You know, maybe oh, we need to be a little bit left team, head in the sand uh, and change the process and say, you know what, my fixing window is going to be one hour, or it's going to be eight hours.
1: You know, there. I'm not a fixing expert, so I'm I, I'm not yeah. going to opine on that. General, why not I look at a system, I'm like, you know, could a system be better? Probably, you <laughs> know. Yeah. Um. And but I think also you just have to keep in mind, markets are insane right now. You know, I was one of the few people yeah. who actually like traded on a trading floor uh when I was an intern. And so I was in uh the Philly Pitts Trading FX options for Swiss Bank at the time, right? Or not trading, but mm-hmm. you know, getting <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, everybody watch. <laughs> um and but they have this concept we of markets. Right? Yeah. And if fast markets if that sign was on, all rules were out. <laughs> yeah. You got you got nothing. And and I think that's kind of a similar, you know, type of concept. This situation is obviously a global, serious, deep situation that is impacting human behavior, governments uh, in a way that you know we haven't seen for 100 years or more. Like, how can we expect really great execution in every single trade that we're doing? I just think that that's not realistic. Yeah, you know,
0: you're going to have yeah, you're going to have slippage. That's what's going on. But then, but then I would also say that, you know, rather than trying to buy your billion dollars over five minutes, which normally uh, I totally agree with you, you probably can get done. Um, surely this is time. Say I need to buy this over eight hours. One would hope. Like, yeah. You know, we, yeah. we don't
1: know what's kind of going on on the other side of that fund. Um, yeah. You know, look at look at credit spreads. Like my gosh, yeah. you know, they they've blown out. Uh, to a thousand basis points, right? Yeah. Those moves are so unfathomable that they may be looking at their FX and just not even thinking about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's the nice. case. You raise an interesting point there, actually, when we're talking here in terms of like, you know, people accepting that liquidity is, or need to accept that liquidity is poor. And it's just, you know, best execution means something totally different now. Something that I have noticed this week, a lot of, my sources have been telling me that when we've seen these strange moves like cable before the WM fix on Tuesday, Aussie uh, before the WM fix yesterday, most of it was from aggressive or from algo strategies hosted by banks that were were literally hitting through the uh, hitting through top of book. So an aggressive strategy. Mm-hmm. Do you think at some stage we're going to have to get to the stage where we say to people, you know, if you look at the global code, it says you need to be aware of your of the impact of your trading on market conditions do you think we might get to the stage where we need to say actually you know what until we can recalibrate our algos aggressive strategies need to be effectively shut down and here's a passive strategy to post interest
1: ah uh, you know i respectfully disagree i, I think all of these algos are are going to have the behavior they're going to have right now that's not necessarily good or bad but you know, yeah. you got to keep in mind, like, someone may be executing that algo, uh, for a genuine reason. They may have hit their risk limit and they just have to get out. Yeah. Um, yeah, would it be less impact if they traded over a longer window? Well, yeah, maybe, but like, you know, they may have a boss in the over their shoulder saying, why aren't you out of that risk? You're going to get fired yeah. in five minutes or not over their shoulder. And maybe I suppose more, then <laughs> maybe remotely from those. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I and mean, then that comes down to risk transfer doesn't it I suppose if they can't get a risk transfer price or, you know, then, or they think they can get out of it better then I guess they'll go that route and please John never worry about being respectfully disagreeing with me people disrespectfully disagree <laughs> with me every single day of my life I'm <laughs> um, originally um, from Texas so we gotta you know we gotta try to be respectful <laughs> well thank you for that <laughs> yeah. um, we're, gonna take a short, we're gonna take a short break now while John and I respectfully agree to disrespectfully disagree for the rest of the podcast. We'll be back in just a second.
1: Profit and Loss is moving industry conferences online. Instead of traveling to London, Frankfurt, or New York, visit profit-loss ProfitHyphenLoss.com slash events and register for our new dial-in day online conferences. You can also email info at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities.
0: Okay, welcome back, so John. what I wanted to move on to now is maybe some of the the broader themes that um are, are sort of arising out of this covid nineteen pandemic um specifically around i mean the issue of monitoring compliance when you've got such a diverse geographical spread of staff you know you've got maybe a third working from home, you know a third on disaster recovery sites, a third in um you know, the main office and maybe the other 10 cents spread into various places. What are the challenges around monitoring behavior and activity in such an environment?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, there have been so many businesses disrupted and I, I want to be, you know, uh, very thoughtful about those businesses that are going through really tough times. Amazingly, for a lot of, you know, startups like ourselves, uh, who have been set up on the cloud, you know, from the beginning, nothing has changed. And the data that we're getting from our firms is still the data that we're getting from our firms. So if you're, it depends on what you're trying to monitor and what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to monitor something that is already electronically recorded, has really great timestamps, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then, you know, if you're controlling that system from, uh, you know, your desk in, in your, in your kid's study, you <laughs> know, playroom, which, which, you know, oddly mirrors my own situation and, or, <laughs> or, uh, you know, on a trading desk, that data is still recorded in the same exact way where, where, you know, kind of an obvious challenge is that you just don't see the people, you know, could they be doing something that is totally not allowed? You know, on the trading floor. One, you know, one big thing that the big banks got into was, um, you know, cell phone usage completely strict. You can't even pull the thing in. You don't even look at a text message, you know, on the, on the front of your, uh, screen. You know, obviously that's harder to monitor as people are remote. Um, yeah, you know, but that's just kind of an obvious statement.
0: Yeah. But I guess one that's important nonetheless, isn't it? But then to go back to our earlier conversation you kind of have to rely upon people to be doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, so many people are juggling um, you know, in, in the US and I'm sure in a lot of other locations, suddenly, you know, teaching their kids in addition to their, you know, normal day job. Uh, I don't talk to many people that feel like they have
0: time on their hands.
1: <laughs> you know, they're just trying to actually get their job done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I so this kind of tells me that the cloud then has been the good new story in terms of we've had so much technology development over the past decade, and you know in the e pricing and risk management game obviously we've we've taken huge strides you yourself are in that in that business yourself, so you know that um but they've kind of been found wanting at the extremes that we're seeing now as in people realize they cannot manage us manage so many systems of such complexity from some remote locations, hence the liquidity we're seeing. Um, is the cloud then the good news story that's helping people manage at least one aspect of what they're doing, and that's a control function?
1: You know, I can't comment on what bank internal systems do. You know, I, I don't nice. think that they're well set up to utilize it. But I can talk about just kind of, you know, Wall Street in general, you know. The, the thing is, the cloud is not new. <laughs> if you're in the regular yeah. technology business, if you're, you know, if you go get a job at Google or Facebook, you, you would say, like, what we're going to, we're going to host our own servers? And well, I guess Google and Facebook is a bad example because they own huge amounts of servers. But, you know, you wouldn't go yeah. to do a startup uh, in the tech business without using the cloud. It would just, it wouldn't make any sense at all. Um, The idea of buying a server and and putting it on a rack is just so outdated. And the the programming techniques, the software uh, builds, you know, everything is just so readily available to support development and deploy on a cloud. So there really is nothing new. It's a lot about just Wall Street finally opening up their doors to it, realizing that they're actually potentially going to have less risk by adopting cloud services. Then, if they really require that everything be in their controlled data centers on really outdated equipment that may be you know subject to a lot more uh cyber attacks, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm. So with this I mean how far into this transition do you think we are? I mean are we literally like you know just at the beginning of a transition oh,
1: into Absolutely of the beginning. You know, I started this business um you know just uh it was it which was over four years ago, right? And at every meeting during that time, when I first started, everyone said, Hey, you know, uh, we're kind of uncomfortable with the cloud. Can you deploy on site? And our technology is available too, but, but we, we don't do that anymore. And now every conversation that we have is, Oh, yeah, we're, we're fine with cloud. You know, are we're anonymizing our data before we send it to you. That de-risked it. We're comfortable and we're moving forward. We understand that you're going to give us a better service by our adopting that. And so that shift has really happened mentally. Um, you know, is every bank there? No. And are we just at the beginning of this adoption? Absolutely. Yes. You know, this is just the, you know, the banks are starting to dip their toes in the, uh, in the services and software that are sensible for it. I wouldn't necessarily want to host something like Broadway Technology, which is on, you know, in the cloud. <laughs> you know, that's that's not something that's really appropriate for like order execution. But for a lot of services that are not uh that don't need microsecond level of reaction time, you know, you should definitely be looking at it because you know, you get instantaneous disaster recovery, um, your costs are gonna go way down. You can utilize much better equipment, you can upgrade your equipment very, very quickly. Et
0: cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I suppose if <clears throat> that will be higher people's agenda once we do come out of this um, crisis, which I think, you know, most people agree we will at some stage, um, maybe this should just accelerates that up the agenda of more institutions as they've had direct experience of A, the benefits and um, B, the shortcomings of the existing infrastructure. So. You
1: know, it, it's it's quite possible that this disruption will, you know, really kind of spur everybody to really think about much more innovative services. Um, you know, everyone's, you know, the bank stocks are not um, let's say, up on the year, you know, put it gently. Yep. And they're but they still have to adhere to the FX Global Code. They need to be able to evidence that. They need to adhere to regulation. They need to be able to evidence it. If they don't have the resources in house, and they just can't get it done, that's not a great excuse. So they still need to get it done, and I think they're going to look to vendors in the analytics space, but, you know, also in other spaces for algo execution, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's just a lot of these other vendors providing a much more um, streamlined service are going to net long-term, you know, uh, thrive because of this disruption. And that's, you know, you
0: know not saying that it's a good thing that we have this no no, no. yeah i mean well i mean yeah I, I i think you're right i mean it's it's one of those things that um when you get these you know globally um systemic frankly you know societal effect uh, events then inevitably we do have a sort of that period of introspection and and the markets and financial services industry will be no different um mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, we'll we'll close out there, um, John. Thank you very much for your time today. Been great to talk to you again, and great to have you on the podcast again. Um, to our listeners, uh, yeah, well, hopefully we you know, we hope you stay safe and everybody stays well, and we uh, we will come out the other side of the uh, of the pandemic as we get into the week three of the lockdown in the UK. Um, I know a lot of our UK listeners will be sitting there banging their heads against a brick wall. If you are, you can think of me going downstairs now to try and shave a cat. So on that, <laughs> that's going to get me in so much trouble. That's drone. a great there you go. Thank you. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> thanks, thanks again, John. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week.
1: Thank you, Colin. Real pleasure being on.